All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on the Gospel of Mark. In this recording, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 11, verse 27, down through chapter 12, verse 12. And in context, it's Passover week in Jerusalem. At the very beginning of the week on Sunday, Jesus rode into town on a donkey and he was being hailed as the Davidic king, the Messiah. Then the next day on Monday, he carried out two prophetic acts announcing judgment on the temple. He cursed the fig tree and then he overturned and chased the money changers out of the table. Well, now... In this session, the passage we're looking at, Jesus and his disciples come to Jerusalem again, and it's Tuesday. It's just a few days before his arrest and his crucifixion. And so here we are in Jerusalem on Tuesday, and here's what happens. Verse 27, and they came again to Jerusalem. So they're staying out in Bethany overnight, coming into Jerusalem in the morning. And so in our last recording, they're on their way into Jerusalem when Peter sees the cursed fig tree, points it out. Jesus gives a little lesson on prayer and faith, God's will, God's kingdom, all of that we talked about in our last recording. Now they finish the walk into Jerusalem and they come again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple area again, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him and began saying to him, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority to do these things? Now, it's not specified in their words what things Jesus is doing, but in context, it's pretty clear. What did he do on Sunday? Well, he rode into town on a donkey in a manner that clearly called to mind Zechariah chapter 9, and he's being hailed as the Messiah, the Davidic king, by his followers who are coming into Jerusalem with him. So that was Sunday. The day before, on Monday, he is coming to the temple, and he has made this prophetic demonstration, chasing the money changers out of the temple, quoting Old Testament text about uh, the judgment on the temple. And so it's pretty clear what things they're talking about. And so here we have members of Jerusalem's ruling elite calling out Jesus and challenging him over his credentials and wondering, how do you have the authority to do this? Now, recall that after Jesus did what he did in the temple, these same ruling elite started looking for a way to put him to death. Well, this is likely part of their investigation. And so they asked Jesus this question, by what authority are you doing these things? And Jesus responds to their question with a counter question. This is a very common thing in Jesus' day and age. This is the way teachers and rabbis would interact. And so he responds with a counter question. Verse 29, but Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question and you answer me. And then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. So here's Jesus' counter question. Verse 30. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. In other words, they, Jesus' counter question is, was John, John the Baptist, sent from God? Or was he merely doing his own thing, acting on his own initiative? And in a very real sense, this question is related to their question. It's the question of, authority and authorization. 
God in the past, like under in the Old Testament, right? He had raised up prophets, and those prophets frequently spoke to and spoke against kingly and priestly authorities in the Old Testament time period. So was John like that, or was John merely acting on his own accord? So verse 31, they began considering the implications among themselves, saying, hmm, if we say from heaven, he will say, then why didn't you believe him? Right? Like if God sent him, you should have listened to him. But, verse 32, should we say from men, well, they were afraid of the people for they all considered John to have been a real prophet. And so they realized they're stuck. Either answer has dangerous ramifications. And when you listen to their thinking, you realize that they're less interested in the truth and more interested in their own political skin. And so, they've wrestled with the implications. They decide to plead the fifth. Look at verse 33. Answering Jesus, they said, we don't know. Uh, They know they're stuck, so they're not going to give any comment. They're not going to give any answer. Well, since they're not going to answer Jesus' question, guess what Jesus does? And Jesus said to them, neither am I going to tell you by what authority I do these things. Since they don't care about the truth, what's the point of dialoguing with them? They really only care about their own position, their own power, their own political skin anyhow. So, and that's now been made clear by their reaction to Jesus' question. So, he's just not going to engage with him. At least, sort of. What Jesus does do is he goes on to tell a parable. A parable, which is a story with a point, right? A parable with a not-so-thinly-veiled warning about the leaders. And so here's Jesus' parable, verse, chapter 12, verse 1. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. Picture grapevines, right? And so a man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a vat under the wine press, and built a tower, and leased it to vine growers, and went on a journey. So common experience in their day, right? You got some wealthy landowner. He plants a vineyard. Grapevines and vineyards were everywhere in Jesus' world. So he gets the vineyard. He actually has the whole thing set up. He's got a wine press. He's got a vat where he can collect the, the grape juice. And then he leases it out to tenant farmers, vine growers. And then he goes on a journey. This parable plays off the well-known imagery of Israel as God's vineyard. For example, Isaiah chapter 5, very famous passage in the Old Testament where Israel is portrayed as a vineyard and God is the owner of that vineyard. And there in Isaiah 5, in that context, it ends in judgment. It ends on God judging Israel. That is the vineyard. The vineyard in Isaiah 5 only produced worthless grapes, and so it's just left to be ruined and destroyed. And so in their context of their not only their farming world with vineyards everywhere, but in their theological thought world with passages like Isaiah 5 and others, this vineyard in Jesus' story was well understood to be a picture of God in Israel. And so in this parable, the owner, i.e. God, plants a vineyard, leases it to vine growers, that is the Jerusalem leadership, who are to operate it on his behalf, and then he goes on a trip. And then harvest time comes. And so now it's harvest time. It's harvest season. And the owner of the vineyard 
expects to reap some of the rewards, the proceeds from his vineyard. And so look what happens. Verse 2. And at the harvest time, he, that is the owner, sent a slave, a servant of his, to the vine growers in order to receive his share of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. And they, that is the vine growers, the tenants, took the servant and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. So the owner sends the servant and give me my proceeds. Uh, the, the renters take the uh, servant. They beat him, send him back home empty-handed. So he sent him another one, verse 4. Again, he sent another servant. They wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully, sent him away. So he did it again, verse 5. He sent another. That one they kill. We're ramping things up. Notice we've gone from beating him to wounding him in the head and treating him shamefully to now killing him. And so with many others, beating some and killing others. So this owner keeps sending servants trying to get the vine growers that he's leased his vineyard to to do the right thing. Well, at this point, after sending many servants, he decides... Okay, I'll try one last thing. And so the vineyard owner decides a final approach. Verse 6. He had one more person to send, a beloved son. He sent him to them last of all saying, they'll respect my son. Now, this is a clear allusion, obviously, to Jesus himself as the son, as the one who stands in as the full representative of the, uh, the, the owner of the vineyard. Look how patient the owner of the vineyard is. He kept sending servant after servant, kept believing that eventually they would do the right thing. And even now, he's confident that when he sends his son, they'll respect his son because he's his son. That's incredibly patient with these tenants. But what happens? Well, he sends him his son, and here's what happens. Verse 7, But those vine growers said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. This is a brutal description of what Jesus understands the Jewish leadership to be doing. He understands them to be claiming God's vineyard for themselves. It's ours and we're going to keep it and we're going to do with it what we want. That's what Jesus understands the Jewish leadership to be doing. And so in this parable, Jesus makes a very targeted point towards the Jewish leadership of his day. And then Jesus drives home that point by describing the owner's response. Look at verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He himself will come and he will put the vine growers to death and he will give the vineyard to others. And so in their thought world, understanding the vineyard is Israel and the temple and their positions of power and God is the owner, they get the point, right? Like the owner of the vineyard is going to come and judge them and condemn them for their self-serving, power-hungry uh, entitled sense of, let's make this vineyard ours. Um, and then Jesus supports his point with scripture in verses 10 and 11. Jesus says, have you not read this scripture? A stone which the builders rejected. This has become the chief cornerstone. 
This came about from the Lord, and it's marvelous in our eyes. This is a quote from Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. Psalm 118, verse 22 and 23. Here's what's interesting. This is Tuesday when Jesus is telling this parable. On Sunday, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey. And when he's riding into Jerusalem, the crowd is actually chanting lines from Psalm 118. And this quote right here in verses 10 and 11 comes right before the words that the crowd of followers shouted uh, about Jesus as he rode into Jerusalem. And so that psalm is clearly on people's minds. That psalm is clearly in the background of Jesus' behavior um, in these first few days. And it's clearly on Jesus' mind. And what Jesus is doing by saying, haven't you read? And then quoting it is Jesus is trying to force them to read Psalm 118 a little more closely. The builders, that is, the leaders are actually going to reject the very stone that God will use to build his house, his people, his temple upon. In other words, Jesus is implying that he himself is the cornerstone of God's new temple and that they, the Jewish leadership there in Jerusalem, are rejecting him, God's cornerstone. Well, guess what? They get the point, verse 12. And they were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared the people, for they understood that he told the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. And so they get the point. They're all the more enraged, all the more motivated to try to find a way to seize him and kill him. But they got to figure out the right time and the right place to do it because they're afraid of the people. Now, Let's just offer a few reflections before we leave this little section. Uh, this parable reminds us that so many of Jesus' parables are first and foremost about what is happening in Jesus' own ministry in his own day. They speak to us by extension, that is by implication and application, but first and foremost, they're about Jesus and his original audience. And that means that this parable is not about us. It's about them. It's about Jesus. It's about the Jerusalem leadership. It's about their rejecting Jesus as the Messiah and all of that. And ironically, it this parable implicitly answers their question about who authorized Jesus to do these things. They, they said, who authorized you to do it? They have this interchange. Jesus doesn't answer. But this parable implicitly answers that question. Who authorized Jesus? God did. How do we know? Because God, the owner of the vineyard, sent his son and they rejected and killed him. And so implicitly, Jesus is claiming to be that son of the owner of the vineyard, of God himself, who he sent, whom the leaders are rejecting. Now, even though this parable is first and foremost directed to the Jewish leadership of Jesus' day, and they understand it that way, and they get the point, does that mean that this parable has no message for us? Well, no, of course not. In fact, this is the whole way the Bible always works. We're never the original audience. We always hear the message in context of the original audience. And then by extension, we have to figure out how, how it speaks wisdom to us as God's people today. And one of the lessons that this parable 
And this passage teaches us is that religious authority or religious position does not necessarily equal faithfulness to God or God's purposes. You can be religious and be a rebel. Or, again, another thing that we see here is their greed and self-serving. That's what drives them according to the parable. They want the vineyard for themselves. They want all the proceeds for themselves. How often is that still the case? Power, position, prosperity often lead to self-serving and self-protection rather than to honestly and humbly seeking the truth, rather than being willing to change and change your mind if necessary. And this, this episode, this parable, what does it say about the son? Well, he's the great stone. The great stone that God is going to use to form his people and his new temple around. And he is the stone that was rejected by his own very people, the leaders of his own people. But he's not rejected by God. And so if you're with him, then you're with God. If you're not with him, you're in danger of being crushed by this great stone. That's the point Jesus draws out in other places. It's the point that uh, Peter draws out in 1 Peter chapter 2, that if you're with him, then you're part of God's new people, God's new temple. But if you're not, then this stone, this stone may just crush you. Hey, it's John. Before we leave this recording, I just wanted to say thanks a ton to all of you who make the ministry of the Bible and life and the listener's commentary possible by your prayers and your faithful support. The listener's commentary is a listener-supported Bible teaching effort made possible by the generosity of people just like you. So thanks a ton for that. And if you want to join the team of supporters, you can go to listenerscommentary.com. You can click the Give button and you can set up a monthly donation there, or you can give a one-time donation if you want to as well. And just another reminder that the Listener's Commentary website and the Bible Study Hub that goes along with it is at the present time getting a complete professional upgrade and rebuild. It'll be so much more useful once it's all done. The study hub will be uh, have much more content. It'll be easier to add new content. Super excited about that. So I'll be looking forward to that over the ha next handful of weeks.